I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. Today, human-caused climate change presents perhaps the largest obstacle to human existence. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the international standard, predicts significant warming, sea level rise, and ice melt by the end of the century with current emission rates. And the IPCC, as you have pointed out in the past, David, is conservative in their estimates. And just about every model prediction they have included in their reports over the years have been shattered by reality. Arctic sea ice, for example, has melted at a rate of 13% per decade, which is way faster than any previous prediction. And similar trends are occurring with sea level rise, with global temperature, and many other global processes that we have assumed in the past would be problems for generations much, much further in the future. The consequences of global climate change are being felt more dramatically and much, much quicker than we are prepared for. And what this means is we are facing more frequent and longer droughts, more intense heat waves, more numerous and more destructive weather events like hurricanes, floods, storms, and the fallout of all these changes includes things like increased wildfires, as we've discussed before, but also general increase in stresses placed on all points of our global systems. This is things like supply chains, power grids and infrastructure, and even our food production. And these changes have been driven by human emissions of greenhouse gases, mostly from the burning of fossil fuels, but also significantly from our impacts on natural systems. Activities like deforestation have contributed much to these changes. The biggest way we could prevent, or could have prevented, This destructive change in climate is through a reduction of emissions, something that we have continually failed to do, miserably failed. Global emissions of greenhouse gases has continued to rise annually, despite any advances in energy efficiency and alternative fuels that we have come up with. In fact, these advances may themselves be contributing to increased emissions, a moral hazard concept that we'll discuss at some point later. And because we are failing so miserably at the only thing that could actually save us, that is, stop burning fossil fuels, well, more and more effort is being put into developing technology and ideas for directly intervening in the climate. And these ideas are crazy. Things like shooting trillions of robots into space to physically block the sun's rays. But before we get into the specifics of some of these crazy ideas, David, this idea of human-caused climate change is nothing new. It's at least 120 years old. But what's so interesting is how this idea has changed over time. In 1896, there was a Swedish scientist named Svent Arrhenius, and he pioneered the idea of a greenhouse effect on the Earth's climate and asked if changes in atmospheric CO2 could cause changes in temperature. And he theorized that humans could cause a change in the global climate through the burning of coal. Although at the time in 1896, we were contributing about 0.1% of the total CO2 in the atmosphere. So he assumed this change would take place over a thousand years. And five years later, another Swedish scientist, Nils Ekholm, theorized that in the future, humans could avoid the onset of a natural ice age by producing CO2 and raising the temperature. And in the 1950s, American scientist Harrison Brown optimistically mused 
that increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide could stimulate plant growth and increase world production of food. Little did any of these scientists know that within a couple generations, humans would be dealing with such dramatic consequences of pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that new and startling ideas for altering the climate were being driven by the desperate desire to save us from ourselves. You know, Daniel, I was, uh, I read an article and it posed a question. It said, well, if there were civilizations that occurred on the past and on earth, and I'm not talking about the recent past, not thousands of years ago, not tens of thousands of years ago, but millions or hundreds of millions of years ago, how would we know that they exist? Any guess? Um, cave paintings, uh, skeletons, <laughs> uh, ancient technology in the ground. Yeah, okay, so fossils or something that we come across. Yeah. But, I mean, the world's a big place. The The odds of coming across fossils or things are slim. And a lot of our society, statues, temples, they're not going to last on a geologic time scale. Especially not anything built with our steel-reinforced concrete, which only lasts about 75 years, right? Yes, as we've discussed. So, I mean, this question ultimately becomes, well, if there are people looking back at us, some other intelligent creatures 100 million years from now, what are they going to see in the timeline, the history of Earth? Will they notice anything? This question ultimately comes down to is, well, our impact on the environment, all this carbon dioxide that we're putting into the environment, the carbon that we're burning from our fuels, well, these have a geologic impact. The Earth is deposited in tiny carbon nodules, these teeny tiny little spheres. They're blanketed all across the Earth, and it's because of burning all this fuel, it sends these aerosol carbons into the air, and they're slowly deposited all around the world. And this shows up in core samples, whether that's rock, whether it's ice, but you can see this as a worldwide global phenomenon. And in fact, it turns out this isn't the first time that this has happened. So 65 million years ago, give or take, well, there's also a global deposit of these tiny carbon nodules. Except at that point, we know it's because that asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs, well, it slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula and ignited the oil reserves underneath the ground there, firing it into the air and depositing these aerosolized carbon fuels all across the world. Very similar to what we're doing now. And of course, we know what happened at that time, but that's the legacy we're leaving behind. So what you're saying, David, is that climate change is a naturally occurring phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's ultimately what, what we're taking away from this. But it is something uh, I want to introduce as a concept for this show, is that our actions, even though they seem small at the time, do have profound effects on the Earth, even on a geologic timescale. And the choices we make, when they are magnified in the right way, well, they have big effects on everything around us. And that is the concept of today as we delve into this topic, which is, of course, geoengineering. And actually, David, recently, some scientists, they don't like the term geoengineering as applied broadly to some of the things that we're going to be talking about, but prefer the phrase climate intervention. Engineering implies a very scientific and controlled approach where most of these things that we're going to be talking about are basically just gambles that we have no idea what the consequences would be or even if they would work. Well, that's the kind of stuff I like to hear as being proposed for solutions. And as a funny aside, if you try to search anything geoengineering related, uh, you get a whole bunch of conspiracy stuff. <laughs> yeah, all those like harp weather altering conspiracies and videos and things. Chemtrails. Chemtrails. Yeah. Which incidentally is something sort of that we're going to talk about as one of these proposed solutions. So not necessarily from planes as you might expect, but... So like you said, our emission of greenhouse gases has a big impact on the earth. And that's what we've seen. That initial scientist in 1896 assumed that that impact would occur over a thousand years. But because our output of emissions has increased so dramatically 
And because of certain feedback loops in the climate that we did not anticipate, the change has been much more rapid. And now we're facing a situation where you basically have two ways that you can try and deal and adapt to this changing climate. And that is you can try and mitigate the output of emissions. So that means reducing the burning of fossil fuels, reducing the amount of carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere, switching to alternative fuel sources. And then you have direct geoengineering or climate intervention where you try to put in place a technology or a practice that will counteract the climate consequences of burning fossil fuels. And that's usually from either directly blocking the sun or trying to bounce more of the sun away from the earth or eliminate some of the blanketing uh, features of, say, clouds or something. But this is all stuff we're going to get to in a moment. I also want to point out that some of the best research that we did on this project was from a couple of movies. Maybe you've seen them before. Day After Tomorrow and Geostorm. They're excellent scientific looks at geoengineering on a major scale. Uh, highly recommend checking them out for the up-to-date factual analysis from Hollywood. My favorite part of the movie is when they drop bombs on a hurricane to make it disappear. That's the future. So, David, let's talk about some of the practices going on right now that are literally happening to try and alter the climate in some way. That's a great way to start this conversation because a lot of these things sound crazy or impossible, but basically they all did a few decades ago. But some of these ideas are actively being put into place right now. So before we look at some of these dramatic climate changing, earth changing projects, I want to look at something just smaller. And this is a local weather manipulation program, and it's slowly getting larger, and China's deploying a very large version of this program at the moment, and that's cloud seeding. This is an older technology, it goes back decades, and we have a pretty decent understanding of how it works right now. Typically, it's been done, uh, most notably recently during the Beijing Olympics, where we would fire rockets into clouds, either containing salt or silver iodide or a variety of other similar mixtures. And what these do is it goes into the clouds, it encourages cloud development by dropping these chemicals, these particles that encourage crystal growth of the water and the ice in the clouds, making it all come up and then eventually get too heavy and then rain. We know it works. It can get expensive to do it in a continuous nature, but there's a lot of research being put into how to make this industrial in its scale. And one of these programs that's happening is already being deployed in Western China right now. So along the Himalayas, they're at high altitude. They're building basically chimneys. They're these two or three meter tall smokestacks that burn fuel and silver iodide, releasing that silver and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And there's already 500 of these deployed, and they're planning several thousand more. And if it goes really well, that number will climb into the tens of thousands. And the idea is to cause all this smoke to go into the atmosphere, develop clouds, and then rain across the deserts that are normally in the rain shadow to the east of the Himalayas. And this will have a dramatic impact on the total rainfall occurring in China, increasing it by as much as 7%, which is tens of billions of hectares of water every single year. What is locally a small scale program where, oh, we need this locally for crop production or something scaled up to this industrial level? Well, that starts bordering on the edge of these climate change initiatives and geoengineering projects that we're going to discuss. This stuff is already being put into place and it doesn't take a huge amount of investment, but it does have enormous effects for the people downwind of these programs. So that's interesting, David, creating clouds to make it rain. But there's a much broader way at which seeding clouds can alter the climate besides just increased precipitation. Yeah, that's right. And the big thing and one of these major concepts that a lot of these geoengineering programs revolve around is the idea of albedo. And this is something we've talked about in the past, way back in our very first episodes. And what albedo is basically is how reflective a surface is. 
So a white or shiny or silver material is going to have a much higher albedo than something that's dark and absorbs a lot more of that energy. And this is important because the sun is constantly shining down on the Earth. It's emitting all sorts of energy, depositing it on it. And if we don't bounce that back up and out into the atmosphere, well, then it gets trapped in our system and contributes to that climate change. And this is why greenhouse gases are such a big problem. They capture some of that heat that would normally be bouncing back out into space and instead reflect it back to Earth, catching it, trapping it, and increasing the energy and temperature of the planet as a whole. But if there's high albedo, so say sea ice versus dark ocean water, well, the sea ice reflects a lot more energy up into the atmosphere, and while those greenhouse gases are capturing some of it, more of it ends up going out into space. But a dark ground, whether that's ocean or dark trees or asphalt, well, that captures more energy than it reflects. And it's much better at keeping that heat on Earth, and the less heat that's bounced out, well, more of it's trapped by greenhouse gases, and we've exacerbated this problem. And these albedo effects can have a big impact, especially in the short term. There was a volcano that erupted in the Philippines in 1991. It sped out about 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, which reduced the absorption of sunlight. And that had an immediate effect of lowering the global temperature about 0.3 degrees Celsius, which lasted about three years. Of course, once that effect is over with, the warming comes roaring back, which is an interesting uh, consideration when we talk about the idea of stratospheric aerosol injection. So stratospheric aerosol injection, that's a very complicated name, but it is in fact literally just trying to copy what that volcano was doing naturally. So volcanoes, when they erupt and they emit all this ash and other particles and chemicals into the atmosphere, well, a lot of that is, like Daniel mentioned, sulfur dioxide. And sulfur dioxide is a special chemical. It is really good at reflecting the sun back into space. And of course, it also, in great enough quantities, well, it leads to acid rain, which is its own side problem. But one of the ideas that we've suggested for geoengineering is that, hey, if we just suddenly start pumping tons and tons of these sulfate aerosols, things like sulfur dioxide, carbonyl sulfide, sulfuric acid, yes, that's right, sulfuric acid, directly into the atmosphere, well, we can reflect a lot of the sun's energy back into space. And yeah, we're going to get some acid rain, but when we do this devil's math here saying, well, what's worse, climate change or acid rain? Well, you know, maybe a little acid rain would be okay if it means we're all not going to be five degrees Celsius in a few decades. And that's the kind of uh, math that we end up having to do a lot. But basically, we would be pumping tons of this sulfate into the atmosphere, whether through planes, by directly inserting it into fuels, chemtrail crowd, that one's just for you or these things like the chimneys that China's built, or other technologies that we're still discussing, the idea is basically, let's just make Earth shinier by pumping this stuff here, and consequences be damned. And it works really well for a couple of years, but it's something you have to constantly output. It dissipates quickly, just like that volcano in the order of two to three years. So it's a ongoing process. And if you stop, then you get very rapid sudden warming, because the energy that would have been building up is suddenly all coming in at once. I think it's really interesting, this concept of creating clouds in order to block sunlight. But I think an even more interesting kind of related idea to this, David, is what's called cirrus cloud thinning. Cirrus clouds are these high, really cold clouds that they do reflect sunlight, but because of their certain properties, they absorb more radiation than they reflect. So they actually have a net warming impact. And there's this idea that in addition to creating clouds, what if we can somehow dissipate these higher cirrus clouds that are absorbing warmth? This method remains hypothetical, and it's pretty interesting actually why. I was surprised to learn that we don't actually have a good understanding of how ice forms in the atmosphere. 
But here's a quick science lesson for you, David, okay? Bring it. So when you fill a glass with water and then expose that water to H2O's freezing temperature, you get ice, right? Sure. <laughs> I feel like you're tricking me once more. No, nope, I'm always is... set up as the rube on these things, but keep going. Well, this is not a trick. You're absolutely right. But the reason this happens, the reason why water freezes at this freezing temperature is because your water is not pure. Well, I know it's filled with plastic, but... Right. Well, that plastic or any other material, these are solid particles that are in the water. And because these particles act as seeds, right? This is where the word seeding comes from and the phrase cloud seeding. These solid particles, they act as seeds that at the right temperature, they set off a chain reaction of ice crystallization in the water. Well, this doesn't happen in the atmosphere because water vapor is usually pure. There are no solid particles to interact with and set off this ice formation. So what happens in these cirrus clouds, for example, is that a bunch of water vapor enters a supercooled state below freezing temperature. And then at around negative 39 or negative 40 degrees Celsius, somewhere around there, particles just start spontaneously freezing. But if you were to introduce some kind of solid particle or seed to this water vapor, the supercooled water molecules would latch on or interact with the solid particle in a way that would set off very rapid ice formation, which is called heterogeneous freezing. And the simple premise is this. If we can introduce a bunch of solid aerosol seeds into the upper atmosphere, we can set off this rapid freezing in cirrus clouds. And because of the rapid formation of ice, the ice will consist of bigger particles that are more spread out. They're less dense. And the ability of the cloud to absorb the sun's radiation will diminish. Sounds pretty complicated, right? Pretty slick. But if you want to try this at home, just to make sure that we're not making this stuff up, it's a pretty cool experiment you can do. So take a regular bottle of plastic water, put that in your freezer, and then take an unopened bottle of distilled water and put that in your freezer. And leave it in there for like two to three hours. You'll know it's ready when the regular bottle of plastic has totally frozen. But if you look at the distilled plastic bottle, you'll see it's still liquid. Well, you can take it out and you can initialize this crystallization in a couple of different ways. One of the fun ways is you just shake it and you can see the bottle literally freeze over a couple of seconds right in front of your eyes. It's really amazing to see. And if that's not cool enough, you can very carefully unscrew the bottle while it's still liquid, put a piece of ice on a table or something and pour the water down onto that ice. And you'll see the bottle freeze up from the ice into the bottle, sort of midair. It's pretty slick. I highly recommend you check it out. And that's basically all we're doing, except with clouds. You can do it in your kitchen, too. I've never done that. So I'm going to go do that when I get home. <laughs> what surprised me is we don't understand really how this freezing works, especially when it relates to the atmosphere, because it's very hard to measure the presence and the velocity of these ice particles in these high altitude clouds. And we don't really understand how the different properties of these solid seeds, these particles can have in this process of ice crystallization, because depending on their shape, depending on their size and the current temperature, you can get really different results. And there's this possibility that if you add too many seeds, um, you could have the opposite intended effect and actually create additional warming. And I think this has to do with the fact that the way these ice crystals form and the orientation that results can have a big impact on the way they absorb and reflect sunlight. So basically, the idea is we don't really understand how this stuff works, but we are seriously considering this now because, like you said, I mean, this is a desperate situation. We haven't been able to curb our emissions. And as a result, we're looking to crazier and crazier ideas to kind of intervene in the climate. Even if we could figure out how to seed clouds perfectly and how to thin cirrus clouds perfectly, you would have to keep it up indefinitely, which means once you start this process, you can't ever stop. 
Well, we've done something sort of similar accidentally with airplane contrails right now. Again, shout out to the chemtrail crowd, I guess. But when a plane flies, it's a delicate balance because they burn a lot of fuel. A cross-country flight from, say, San Francisco to Boston is going to release, per passenger, something like 1 to 1.3 tons of CO2. That's a lot of CO2 with a lot of potential future global warming. But at the same time, while it's flying at these high altitudes and that contrail, well, it's creating what is basically a serious cloud. And that has a net cooling effect by reflecting some of the sun's energy back into space. And so if we were to suddenly magically stop all of our flights or convert over to a more uh, responsible type of fuel, say if we figured out electric airplanes, if we could get that battery density problem solved, well, if we eliminated these contrails, we would see a very quick and dramatic warming effect on the scale of 0.2 to 0.5 degrees Celsius almost overnight. And while we might have helped ourselves in the long term in terms of global warming by reducing the CO2 in the short term, well, we've got ourselves on an even worse position than we were in before. This actually happened after the attacks on the Twin Towers, September 11th. So many planes were grounded around the world that there actually was a measurable increase in the global climate immediately after, which was quite surprising. But it's not just planes, too. I mean, transportation ships also have the same albedo effect. The emissions that these big commercial ships are giving off actually creates their own contrails in the air that you can see from space. And it's actively blocking some of the sun's rays. So this brings us to another one of our geoengineering topics, which is marine cloud seeding. So marine cloud seeding is very similar to what's going on in the cloud seeding effects of China, except at a much larger scale. And it's been proposed as not a way to increase rain locally, but as a way to increase the world's albedo and lower our climate change problems. And basically, like Daniel said, you can already see this happening right now. So you look at space, you can see the tracks that large oil tankers are taking because they leave these cloud contrails on it, which is sort of funny to think about the ship doing. But because of all the fuel they burn and because that fuel is so dirty, it releases a lot of aerosol particles into the atmosphere. And that causes that nucleization like Daniel talked about and the clouds form around it. Well, the idea is that, well, what if we put specific chemicals in there that are even better at creating these clouds? We could cause a dramatic increase in how many clouds are created and consequently also the albedo effect that we are creating over the ocean. And there's been a lot of calculations done. And while this wouldn't have an enormous effect on equivalent emission offsets, it is something that's worth looking at because a lot of these solutions aren't cure-alls. They're say, oh, we can fix things 1% to 3% or 10% or maybe even up to 30%. And if we add all these things together, maybe then we can have a fighting chance if we also reduce our outputs overall. And that's a conversation we'll get to in a little bit. But short version of the story is if we did this, we put these things out here, well, we could maybe fight some climate change. But there are some local weather effects. This has been tested out on a limited scale. Turns out it's not as efficient when we scale it up. And the fuel that these tankers are already burning is very bad in terms of climate change perspective. And we're actually actively restricting that. There's new regulations going in that's going to change. This bunker fuel isn't going to be burned as much or at all in some places. And again, we sort of got ourselves into a pickle here because uh, this effect that these ships already have is cooling us down, you know, 0.5 degrees Celsius, maybe even more. And well, we're currently actively trying to reduce this fuel output. And as these regulations go in effect, we're going to see another immediate warming jump of maybe a quarter to half degrees Celsius in the short term because we're trying to fix this long term problem that is actually sort of protecting us in these these shorter time spans. So it, uh, everything is a balance and uh, we're pretty bad at m measuring that out. 
Well, also, David, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to trying to intervene and increase the albedo effects on the Earth through some of these seeding efforts. There's not a lot of knowledge about if this was scaled up, how it could impact the environment. There's actually some pretty good modeling papers that suggest that if you were to increase albedo in the northern hemisphere, it would cause massive storms and droughts in the southern hemisphere and vice versa. It can increase the risk of hurricanes. And even there's a compelling argument that doing this on a large scale will reduce ozone in the atmosphere, which is really something we don't want to mess with, right? I mean, we almost killed ourselves off pretty good with uh, ozone depletion in the 70s. But another concern when it comes to these technologies, not just albedo related specifically, but all of these is this moral hazard. And some scientists are actually reluctant to even endorse in any way these technologies, because what they say is, if we endorse technologies that seek to intervene in the climate in this way, it reduces the incentive to do the most important thing, which is reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And this is not an unreasonable perspective because this actually happens all the time. Mark Reisner wrote in Cadillac Desert in 1986 about some of the water policies in the Western United States. And he argued how development created the need to conserve water, resulting in these huge billion-dollar waterworks projects, dams, reservoirs, all these things that would try to conserve water, but ultimately just drove development even more. Because as people felt that we were conserving water, they felt that they could get away with even more water use. And so he warned that the result would be long-term environmental crises and water scarcity as a result of these water conservation projects. And 32 years later, you know, he has not been proven wrong. We have huge swaths of people living out west in the United States that continue to experience increased conflict and hardships over water resources. And eventually that water is going to run out. Turns out it's pretty hard to build a civilization in the desert. But And I think that these efforts in climate intervention could have the same effect. They're buying us time and therefore we don't feel as pressured to make the fundamental changes that we have to if we're going to survive. Yeah, I mean, you were bringing up really great points here. And the whole premise of this show to explore these geoengineering options and what potential negative consequences a lot of them have, it's, I mean, it's sort of silly in the end because we do have a very simple solution to all of this, and that's stop burning fossil fuels. It's easy. There's no side effects. Besides destroying the economy, David, come on. Well, I mean, no, (laughs) maybe that's what I want. But it's very simple. It's a simple thing. It's like when a doctor comes up to you and says, stop smoking, stop drinking, it's killing you. And you say, I don't want to. And you just keep doing it anyway. You hope for a magic pill that'll cure your cancer or regrow your liver. Well, okay. Well, you mentioned it's silly. Let's talk about some more of these ideas and let the listener decide for themselves how silly it is. Yeah, and these get gradually more crazy. But everything we discuss here is seriously suggested by scientists. And and we're not pulling these out of like weird fringe things, but these are from very dense analytical texts that explore these all the way down to the energy returns, the economic returns. Every single thing that we're talking about here is very serious. And there's a lot of time, research and effort put into looking at these. So just keep that in mind as we go forward. With the possible exception of sending trillions of robots into space. Well... Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so continuing down the line of albedo. So let's talk about real quick the ice that's melting, which does have an albedo effect. It's very white. It reflects sunlight. And this melting that's happening at both ends of our poles is reducing that albedo. And so there are some ideas being put forward on how to prevent these glaciers and the sea ice from melting in the first place, not just to improve our albedo, but also to prevent rising sea levels. 
And so there was a researcher from Arizona State University. And one idea that he's putting forward, it's not original to him. This is an idea that's been proposed before, but I guess he's developed it a little bit more. Is he has this idea of building 10 million wind-powered pumps in the ocean, <laughs> which can be used to pump Sorry. seawater onto... <laughs> the Arctic ice cap in the winter, which would then theoretically freeze, expanding the ice cap and preventing sea level rise. It's so good. And helping to reflect some of that sunlight that's warming our planet. And he put this forward in the Journal of the American Geophysical Union and figures that it would it would cost a reasonable $500 billion. Oh, yeah. Which, I mean, honestly, is not that much when, I mean, that is a lot of money. <laughs> It doesn't matter how you cut it. That's a lot of money. I, I love these sorts of ideas. Nothing works at small scales. So you have to blow it up to things. Oh, we just need 10 million pumps. We just need 1 trillion robots. And what's crazy about me is like, oh, it'll just be wind powered. Like that's some sort of magic solution. So some of you listeners might also be serious fans of following what's going on in the Arctic. And if you aren't, I highly recommend checking out this place. It's called the Arctic Sea Ice Forum, and it is the de facto place online or in the world really to sort of follow what's going on at both poles. And one of the major things that we follow on this place is that there are a number of buoys that have been installed by various organizations up in the Arctic. And they're solar powered and they are very small and simple and they keep track of everything. They have GPS, barometric pressure, they take temperatures, they have little camera feeds. They're just very simple things to help us keep track of what's going on in the ice and we can watch them float around and stuff. And it is very hard to keep these very simple things running. They die a lot. They disappear. Um, it's really amazing when one survives a couple seasons. Uh, we all root for them. But <laughs> the idea that you're going to go buoy instead build 10 million pumps that are going to function without any problems in the middle of the Arctic winter is so out of touch with reality. $500 billion aside. And I think that's really sort of a running theme of a lot of these solutions. So, David, maybe the pump idea, not so great. Well, there is another idea related to halting sea level rise, increasing the albedo on these Arctic regions. And as you know, we here in America do love building walls. And there's a <laughs> glaciologist out of Princeton University that believes he has found the solution to rising sea levels, to these melting ice formations, and that is to go underwater using submarines and, and all this technology to build giant walls on the seafloor to block that warm water on the bottom layer of the ocean from reaching these glaciers and melting them from below. So oceans building underwater walls to prevent glaciers from slipping into the ocean. We are getting desperate here. That sounds expensive. Well, David, uh, the science is still out on that one. So maybe there's hope for us in giant walls under the ocean. Well, in the same vein, uh, since we're talking about the Arctic and ice, if one of these pumps or walls ideas don't work, well, it's okay because we've got plenty of other ideas going. One of them, and maybe my favorite here, is, uh, well, we can't pump ice, we can't make more ice, we can't stop these glaciers from melting, but maybe we can emulate ice. And that's either by literally stretching a giant blanket across the entire Arctic of like white plastic to reflect the sun back into the earth and making our own virtual plastic ice. I don't know what that might do to the ecosystem, but my guess is not so good. Or if that's not enough, hundreds and thousands of blimps built over the Arctic, massive blimps who have their own blankets to reflect the light back into the, the atmosphere. As you can quickly see, once again, we have this scale problem and we are definitely reaching for solutions that probably have worse effects for the local ecosystem. Also, it's important to point out, so we're about to leave this idea of albedo, but even if you could 
at a reasonable scale, block enough sunlight from hitting the earth to have a significant opposite effect on climate change, you're still not doing anything to alter your output of CO2 and other greenhouse gases, which is the underlying problem in the first place, which means that the ocean will continue to acidify. Marine life will continue to go extinct. Our global fisheries will collapse. And all the other negative impacts associated with CO2 emissions will continue to go on. And I think that's just going to be a common theme with all these ideas is that any individual idea has to mobilize such a significant share of global energy just to make it happen. And most of the effects are very isolated and don't get at the underlying problem. Well, Daniel, actually, there is one of these geoengineering scale techniques that doesn't really need international cooperation or the funding of giant nations or anything. And one of the geologists actually that came up with this idea famously quipped, give me a tanker half filled with iron and I can give you an ice age. Bold statement. Well, with a dramatic lead like that, uh, you got our interest peaked. And of course, this is ocean fertilization. And the basic idea is this. Researchers looked at the ocean and they realized that one of the major things missing for the growth of plankton, of phytoplankton, of algae, is a lack of iron. And actually, when there are big windstorms picking up sand or soil from Europe, from Africa, and depositing it in the ocean, you see a lot of corresponding algal blooms because this iron, these nutrients, act as just that, nutrients to the plankton, who suddenly explode in numbers, capturing lots of carbon dioxide, providing food for the animals in the ocean, and also, unfortunately, depleting some areas of oxygen, as we discussed before. But the net balance seemed to be, well, this is a great way to capture carbon. If we can cause the giant algal blooms, on a scale of hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of kilometers, well, we can suck a lot of carbon out of the air. And there'll be so much algae producing all this that, yeah, a lot of it's going to die, it's going to sink down, but there won't be enough animals to eat all of it and release it back into the atmosphere. So a lot of it's going to sink down to the bottom of the ocean and die and hold that carbon there for forever. So it's actually, it's really cheap. You can go buy a bunch of iron. Iron rust is not very expensive. You just dump this in the ocean and you're creating very dramatic climate change effects. Or at least that's what the research initially showed. And this has been tried a couple of times. There were actually even a few companies that started based on this idea saying that they would capture and sequester carbon in exchange for carbon credit money. So if I'm in a place where there are carbon credits and I need to offset some of my output, I could buy these credits from these companies and their business model is based around it. Most of them have gone bust because it turns out this idea doesn't really work all that well, like so many things that we find out once we start trying it. And there's a lot of problems with it. And I thought it was kind of funny, though, why we would use iron or, or how that could possibly be a nutrient for plankton and other smaller species. But the way I understand it, David, is that the really important nutrients for these small species is actually nitrogen and phosphorus. But it would be so expensive, it'd be so inefficient to dump nitrogen and phosphorus into the ocean. We already mentioned in our early episode about industrial agriculture how phosphorus has become a very limited resource that is going to cause problems for our fertilizing industries. But I think the idea behind the iron is that it helps these plankton uptake nitrogen and phosphorus that's already in the water. It kind of adds like a nutritious boost, if you will. Mmm, iron vitamins. And of course, like everything, this has problems. So it turns out that when these algae sink, there's a lot more animals eating them than we initially thought. And most of that carbon that we thought was being sequestered, well, it re-enters the system over the next few months, two years. And it also deposits a lot of carbon directly into the ocean, which maybe keeps it out of the atmosphere, but has its own serious problems. 
that we've established in the past in previous episodes as well. And in the long term, it may turn out that that ocean acidification problem might be even larger than some of the climate change things we're facing, but time will tell with that. So in short, it doesn't work really well. It ends up costing a lot more than we thought in terms of cost per carbon ton sequestered. But I don't think it's impossible to think that some company is going to come up with doctored numbers or numbers that look better, pitch this to some billionaire who wants to do social good. And the next thing we know, there's a bunch of tankers dumping all sorts of shit into the ocean that just doesn't really work that well, but makes them look really good. So if you're taking notes right now, Elon, this sounds like the thing that's right up your alley, a lot of show and not much the show for it. Ouch, David. We're going to have to back that claim up with a lot more details if we're going to start criticizing Elon Musk. But it actually is interesting. Speaking, David, of big techno fixes and terraforming to solve our climate problems, I think one of the biggest techno fixes out there in terms of solving climate change is this idea of just colonizing Mars. Oh, we can't solve our own problems on Earth here. So let's go to a different planet and just settle there, right? Well, I mean, in his defense, and this is the only time you're going to ever hear me defending Musk, it's not entirely a climate change solution that they're looking for. But if something apocalyptic happened to Earth outside of this climate stuff, an asteroid event, a gamma ray burst, well, then you would have a backup, so to speak, of life somewhere else. Whether that's worth it or not, that's maybe a different debate. But keep going. Sorry. There is a little bit of irony, though, David, in the fact that we have a planet right now. Uh, It's got oxygen to breathe. It's got uh, gravity that's pretty good. It's got water everywhere that we can drink and grow plants and do all the things that are necessary to life. If we can't make that work, if we can't even colonize Antarctica, which is warmer and more hospitable than Mars is, what makes us so arrogant or confident that we can totally terraform a different planet to make it livable for human life? (laughs) Those are really good points. And this is a rant I really enjoy. I mean, I I talk to people who say, oh, yeah, I would love to live on Mars. It'd be so cool. I'd jump on that. Lean on, please take me away. And then you say, oh, okay. would you like to spend the rest of your life living on the top of Mount Everest? (laughs) Because that's more hospitable than what you would have on Mars by a pretty significant amount. It's not like the movies. You're not going to be growing potato out of your dung. Or maybe you are. Um, And that would be your future there. But there are a lot of things that we can't even fix here that uh, means that it's going to be that much worse on Mars. But uh, hey, car in space. So that's something. Well, David, I took you away from your phytoplankton. So I apologize. Uh, Let's get back to that. And you mentioned that this idea of dumping iron into the ocean could seem very appealing. And we might see this happen on a large scale. And, And that is concerning because just like some of these other technologies that we mentioned like cloud seeding, there's not a lot of understanding on the possible side effects and consequences of doing this. And so some of these possible drawbacks include the fact that adding iron can stimulate a particular microorganism species that has been known to be toxic and harmful to fish and other ocean organisms. Another possibility is that the N2O that is produced. Yeah, that's right. That nitrous oxide that is produced as these phytoplankton decay and are rotting in the ocean. Well, that nitrous oxide that comes out is a very potent greenhouse gas on the order of hundreds of times more than CO2, which is part of the reason why this isn't so efficient after all. And could even counteract whatever benefit we thought we were getting from the CO2 that's captured by these organisms, right? There's also Mm -hmm. a possibility that there's a release of gas that can enter the atmosphere and deplete stratospheric ozone. Again, something we don't want to mess with. 
well, these these side effects keep getting worse. You know what this sounds like? Again, it, it reminds me of that example of, doctor, I need a pill to cure my, my liver because I can't stop drinking alcohol. Well, this pill has worse and worse side effects as we go. That ultimately also includes death. <laughs> but let's keep going. Deoxygenation that we talked about in our ocean death episode. Well, we got the whole crew here. This iron fertilization could result in even further deoxygenation. And of course, acidification at lower layers of the ocean could take place as a result. Yeah, so that's a lot to think about, but it does bring us to this idea of, well, these are techniques to directly remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And there are a whole lot of suggestions on just how to do that. This idea of capturing carbon dioxide from the environment is the ultimate thing that needs to happen in addition to mitigating our greenhouse gas emissions because there's simply too much of it in the atmosphere. It's causing these feedback loops of warming. So ultimately, if you're going to combat climate change, you have to reduce emissions. And if you can't do that fast enough, you need to start removing CO2 from the atmosphere, from the environment. And this is something that already happens naturally, like those algal blooms and those phytoplankton that you just talked about. Well, less than half of all the CO2 that we have outputted is in the atmosphere. Most of it has been absorbed by terrestrial and ocean environments. And so a lot of these ideas revolving around, hey, how can we capture CO2? are aimed at increasing these natural processes and making them faster, such as... Such as planting trees. I mean, it's a very simple, straightforward idea, but actually one that works really well. Uh, well, at least to a certain extent. And, and as we get better understanding of how this technique works, well, we have a better understanding of how to go forward with it. This is one of the most encouraging areas of geoengineering research. And that's because unlike most of these things, this one has much more limited side effects, at least if we do it right. The way we have altered the environment has actually played a very significant role in outputting emissions. Deforestation, for example, accounts for about 10% of all the greenhouse gases that we have emitted. So naturally, one of the biggest ideas in capturing that CO2 back is to plant trees, like you mentioned, David. We have a lot of notes on this section, and the numbers start getting very specific. So 3.3 to 2.29 gigatons of CO2 per year, blah, blah, blah. And, and I don't want to get into that, but the basic concept is if you plant forests in the right place, then you can take a lot of carbon out of the air. But there's a catch with that. So the first is what I mentioned within the right place. Turns out if you build forests in, say, in the northern hemisphere, way up north, where there would normally be large deposits of snow over the winter and reaching into spring, well, the forest has a lower albedo than a snow-covered plain would. And it actually ends up being a net warming effect rather than what the CO2 that we pulled out from that potential forest could be. So it's not a matter of just covering all of Earth in forest, but it's in doing it in the right place. And then that's where we start running into problems and the limits of this technique, because we have to balance our land use. 9% of land is used for urban areas. A third of land, give or take, is used for grazing or for agricultural use. And as we start tallying out this land use, well, we're getting smaller and smaller amounts of land that we can use for reforestation. And then a lot of this land already is forested. And then again, like we mentioned, only certain parts can be used for this. And so our upper limit of what land management can do becomes very small compared to the potential of calculating out, oh, if we covered all of Earth in forest, it would remove this much carbon from the atmosphere. And beyond that, the forest only pulls out carbon while still growing for the first time. Once a forest hits a mature steady state, a few decades to maybe a century down the line, well, then it becomes carbon neutral. And we can't remove this forest without impacting our total carbon load. 
So looking into the idea of forestation, afforestation, and combating this deforestation that we have put into place, I was actually a little bit discouraged because, for one, like you mentioned, once a forest matures, the uptake of CO2 balances out with the amount of trees and detritus that is decaying and, and outputting CO2. So you get that neutral effect. But then if you are so incentivized to cut that forest down for resources, well, now you've just undone all the progress leading up to the maturation of that forest. And in some places, the water vapor that these forests output actually has a greenhouse gas effect and can, again, cause an increased warming. And perhaps one of the most discouraging things about this is the fact that maybe we're just too late for forests to have a positive impact on the climate because we've already warmed to a certain point and we're experiencing these droughts. And as we discussed in Up in Smoke, these mega fires are becoming more and more frequent. Well, if we plant more trees and we grow our forests, but because of the climate environment, we experience more decay in these forests, either through fires or just dehydration of these plants, well, it's going to result in even more greenhouse gas emissions. But the biggest thing we can take away from this is that deforestation plays such a significant role in outputting greenhouse gases that perhaps the largest thing we can do to make a difference right now would be to simply stop cutting down our valuable forests. That would have an immediate near-term benefit. It would be pretty cost-effective. It would be, but you're also asking people to forego the economic productivity of land. So converting land to agricultural use or to urban use is something that people do because they're seeing some sort of return on that investment. And what you're asking instead is stop. We're not going to make any money from this land. In fact, we're going to take money from you either through taxes or through other programs like carbon credits to reforest this land and make it not economically productive. And that's a lot to ask from people who depend on these lands for their livelihood, for better or for worse. And this is the kind of questions that we're going to have to ask with some of these programs is to say, you need to forego your economic incentives right now in order to protect our future decades down the line. Whether that's the ability of your children to make money in the future because their environment hasn't killed them or even just to survive at all. Well, I do want to touch on some of those economic incentives that you're bringing up, David, because in addition to the topsoil loss that we're experiencing with agriculture, there's quite a lot of CO2 that gets lost as well. And soil can actually store some of this carbon dioxide for us, but it would involve a dramatic shift in our agricultural practices, right? We would need to employ no-till systems in agriculture. We would need to introduce more diversity in our crop systems and other land management techniques that could help intake carbon dioxide into the soil. I was really encouraged to read that. These things that Chris had mentioned when he discussed with us his farming techniques on our episode, What We Reap, a lot of them kept coming back in the scientific literature saying these are things we need to be doing right now to help with this carbon sequestration. And that, like Daniel mentioned, is no-till agriculture, growing crops that help to shield fields because open fields are terrible for loss of carbon. So Chris mentioned constantly keeping your soil covered, and that's a very important thing. Cover crops, yeah. And also questioning what crops we're growing. Yeah, cover crops, adding that to corn or to to other fields where that normally wouldn't be the case. And so a lot of things Chris was talking to us about are actually being discussed in the scientific community saying we need to move towards this. But there's very little discussion on whether or not these techniques are compatible with the industrial agriculture and being able to feed as many people as we need to. You mentioned how there's this question of whether our industries are actually profitable. And one thing we have to be careful is if, say, we here in the United States start deploying better practices in land management, we start planting more trees, adding forests to the landscape, and using less intensive agriculture, 
Well, that would be great for us here in the United States. But if all it did was push economic incentives outside of our country, where instead of growing certain crops unsustainably here in the United States, we're just putting more financial pressure on, let's say, a developing country to export a crop that we're looking for here in the United States, then we would ultimately really just be pushing these problems onto a, a different system. We mentioned palm oil, for example, in our wildfire episode. And this is something, again, that gets labeled sustainable here in the West. But over in Indonesia, the practice of growing palms for the production of this product isn't very sustainable. It's actually outputting huge amounts of greenhouse gases from the, the single crop system in addition to all the slash and burning that's going on. So I think we have to, again, think about these things in terms of the global system as opposed to just, hey, we did a good thing here in the United States. We planted some more trees. Therefore, we made a positive contribution. But now we're just purchasing unsustainable products from somewhere else and putting more pressure on them to develop unsustainable practices and harming their region. Right. And I think you touched on, and maybe you didn't even realize that you uncovered this, but this is one of the major problems with this anti-climate change work, things like the IPCC programs. And that's, okay, we're in this point where we have to do something, because if not, the whole world's going to fall apart. And so all the solutions that we're facing right now need global cooperation. We all need to reduce our emissions. We all need to look at programs like we're discussing here in this geoengineering episode as things to do. So our agriculture, if like you mentioned, if we could switch the world to no-till, uh, that would have a dramatic effect. But we're also at the same time when we're doing this, impacting the profitability of these industries, making things more expensive, making food more expensive. And these developing countries turn to us and look and say, well, you know what? This isn't fair. The United States, China, Europe, these are the largest polluting areas per capita in the world. And they got to that because they didn't have to worry about these climate concerns while they were developing. They could just burn the world as they go. Why is it our responsibility now to make up for your problems while you enjoyed all the wealth from this? And there's not really a good answer to that. Why is it fair for us to turn and say, you have to do this because I've already taken all the profits from these destruction in the environment? That's a balance that's going to have to come forward. And I think as these climate fixes get more expensive, as the climate problems get more expensive, and of course, these developing nations typically are the most impacted by these climate problems. Uh, you're going to see it especially in the next few years in places like Bangladesh, Pakistan, Egypt. Well, these places are the ones that are most impacted by the policies we're trying to enforce. And we're really running out of good reasons of why they should continue to do this while we enjoy the benefits of this globalized production, like you mentioned, Daniel. Good point. Good questions. Let's move on to another techno fix that will get us out of this problem, though, David. So maybe one of the ways that the first world, the developed nations that are profited from all this can pay back is with these space solutions. Because while we've taken all this income from the environment, it enabled us to have these highly developed technological societies and space programs. And we're in a position where we could potentially very dramatically alter the Earth's climate with relatively simple and in the grand scheme, relatively affordable space installations. So you're saying we do need Elon Musk after all, David? <laughs> Maybe I'm, I'm eating my words already. But yes, the ideas of how to impact Earth from space are such a great pinnacle of this geoengineering conversation and the desperate nature of this conversation. I love these. I love these ideas because they're crazy and they're huge and they're basically the same exact things that a like really bad supervillain would plan out in order to hold the Earth hostage. And it really <laughs> illustrates what kind of situation we're in. So these all basically revolve around the idea that we need to block how much sun is hitting the earth. And this is different than the albedo affecting ones where we're trying to bounce the sun back away from the earth. 
in that we're just literally cutting the sun from hitting the earth at all. Which again, doesn't do anything to address the fact that we're still outputting greenhouse gases and probably even more so if if the topic is space and we're launching rockets into the air. I mean, they're not CO2 efficient, but it's not as bad as some people might think. Again, here I am sounding like I'm defending Elon. But so let's talk about the first one of these. Okay, so the first group of these ideas is basically let's cut the sun down with some sort of sunshade or sun blocking device. And the prices for these range pretty dramatically, as you can guess. And I think, at, honestly, they range so much, it really feels like scientists are just throwing out numbers, hoping that they'll stick. And someone will be like, yeah, let's give you more grant funding to look into this. The first one would be building basically a giant solar shade using very thin materials. They're not really sure how they would keep it in position because the sun's solar wind is constantly pushing on these giant sails. In fact, there's a technique of moving through space with giant solar shades that use the sun as basically wind like we do on Earth with ships. So it would have to be constantly propelled and pushing it away from Earth towards the sun very slowly and this giant 2,000 kilometers wide, so I mean enormous, a third of the size of the United States, cutting down the impact of the sun on Earth. And the cost for a program like this has been estimated at uh, $5 trillion for 50 years worth of longevity. The hope is that by the time that sail dies, we'll have figured out another solution. And I guess this would actually be visible from Earth, which would be kind of cool, I guess, sort of man-made artificial satellite up there. But that's crazy. And they're not entirely sure what effects it would have if things went wrong here. Well, it's sort of hard to get this out of orbit. So there are other ideas. There's a giant Fresnel lens that seems like a bargain compared to this. They estimate $10 billion up front and then another $10 billion to maintain it over the lifespan of the device. And then one that gives us a lot more flexibility in terms of being able to adjust, move around, and make changes if the sunshade actually isn't working so well is it's to launch trillions of robots, very small robots holding small shades that can maneuver around to Lagrange Point, blocking the sun from hitting the earth or cutting down on the impact of it. Again, these are crazy ideas, but it's not the craziest one. There's no cost estimate for um, sending robots into space yet, because in order to do it, you'd have to build a giant electromagnetic gun on the top of some tall mountain that would launch them into space. And we we haven't quite figured out how to do that yet. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where they come up with these things. They're just like, well, if we just made up a bunch of technology, then they would be totally fixed, which actually I guess is a lot of what thinking behind these geoengineering projects are. But like I said, this isn't the craziest idea for space. David, so the craziest idea regarding blocking the sun's rays from hitting Earth is, look, we don't need to send robots into space from Earth. What we need to do is set up factories on the moon that can manufacture glass directly using uh, lunar material. And then as part of this whole thing, we're going to manufacture a railgun on the moon that can shoot this material to the appropriate orbit around Earth. And then we're going to assemble this glass into a giant shield that will be crystal clear for 100 years and therefore block the sun's rays and help keep that warming effect from impacting the climate. And the basic idea is, hey, we just need to acquire about 10,000 tons of material on the Earth that will be the initial payload. We'll launch that from the Earth to the moon at a cost of about a trillion dollars, reasonable one trillion dollars. And then once we set that up on the moon, we'll spend about $20 billion a year for project management. And, you know, if we do our job right, the cost of manufacturing these factories, of managing this project, and then getting this glass that we're going to magically figure out how to manufacture on the moon will be about $5 trillion. And, you know, the economic benefit of blocking the sun's light will give this whole project about $10 trillion value. So we come out ahead at the end. I like that math. 
Let's do it. I'll start the crowdfunding. Those are two researchers from uh, the University of Arizona. <laughs> that same university. What are they doing over there? They need to figure out how to make the desert a little bit more hospitable before we start building factories on the moon. <laughs> so those are crazy ideas. But some of these geoengineering ideas that, like we mentioned, the technology doesn't exist yet. Well, they actually are being used actively right now in the IPCC projections of what we have to do in order to stay under two degrees Celsius, even with emissions reduction, which, spoiler alert, hasn't been happening yet. So let's talk about these, Daniel. When it comes to capturing carbon out of the air and sequestering it, these are really the most developed theories on the subject. And we have to talk about this, uh, what's called bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration, or BECS. Because, David, like you said, when it comes to predicting and modeling our ability to reverse climate change or capture CO2, well, the implementation of this so-called negative emission technology, energy that actually sequesters more CO2 than it outputs, well, these technologies are built in fundamentally to these models that the IPCC and other climate uh, institutions are using to predict how we're going to address this crisis going forward. So let's take a look at Bex for a second. One thing I just want to point out real quick before we start is this. We are depending on this carbon sequestration and storage technology that doesn't really exist or doesn't exist at scale yet. But at the same time, we're also ignoring a lot of the critical feedbacks that are most contributing to global warming, things like methane contributions, which because the IPCC could not model accurately, they just completely left out. And is part of the reason why we're constantly seeing this more than expected, faster than expected event. So we're depending on technology that doesn't exist, ignoring things that are already happening in order to stay under two degrees Celsius if we still reduce emissions. It's not looking hopeful, but let's look at this tech. So this is the basic premise. We're going to grow trees and plants. Done. Yeah. We got that figured out. We, got, we can do that. Well, I mean, kind of. Well, for, for the next 60 years. Anyway. Yeah. Well, they're going to capture CO2 from the atmosphere. Then okay. we're going to cut them down. We're really good at that one. Yeah, we're really good at that one. We're going to double our transportation infrastructure to then deliver all this cut down material to power plants all over the world. This is starting to sound expensive and energy inefficient, but I'm still on board. Let's keep going. We're good at we're good at building cars and ships and planes. So once this material gets to power plants, we're going to burn the trees. We're good at that. Releasing all that CO2 that they capture. Okay, we're really good at that. Yeah. And then we're going to capture that CO2 before it can escape the power plant. We're not so good at that. And then bury it deep underground. <laughs> uh, okay, this is where we start to lose me on this program. And again, this is this the key for the IPCC estimates. Yeah, specifically, I think it's assumed that we're going to be able to get about 50% of all global energy from this method. A little bit less than 50%, depending on which estimates that you're looking at. By what year? Uh, by 2050. And that also includes a 70% decrease in emissions by 2050. And again, 2017, well, it went up again. So we had 30 years to turn that around. Easy. And okay, David, obviously this sounds ridiculous. And we touched on in that industrial agriculture episode about the inefficiency of biofuel and how it's actually pretty harmful. But it's easy to see, for one, that where are we going to plant all these trees? Where are we going to plant all this material that we're then going to immediately cut down and then somehow use that to fuel our global energy infrastructure? It's got to be put into the ground. And that means it's going to be competing with the land that we're trying to use right now intensively 
to grow food for seven and a half billion people, which by whatever the year is that we need to do this is probably going to be about nine billion people, right? So there are some competing forces going on here that are both extremely important to our survival. One of the biggest challenges with this is that if we were going to set aside enough land to do this, there's no doubt we would have to dramatically shift global diets immediately. I mean, we're talking about no more meat consumption. Because pastured land, I think, is like double the amount of land that we use for uh, direct Mm -hmm. crop growth. So you're going to have to get rid of all that land that you're using to grow animals for food. We can't do that anymore. And so that's a big obstacle. We're we're certainly not on the right track, right? I mean, meat consumption is rising dramatically, especially in developing countries that have historically not had access to that and are now looking to emulate more affluent diets. We're going to have to eventually hit 1,000 million acres, which is... 1 billion. We're going to have to hit 1 billion <laughs> acres of arable land for biomass cultivation. What was that number that we had? I think that's a little bit more than the total amount of farmland in the entire United States. Imagine the entire U.S. only growing plants to burn. And that gives you an idea of the scale of this idea. And it's not so simple as just setting land aside to start growing these energy crops because land conversion is complicated. Land ecosystems established already have a bunch of carbon sequestered. Wetlands, old growth forests, undisturbed grasslands. And if we were to try and convert these to start growing plants for our energy, well, we'd be releasing a ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And in some cases, it would take a couple decades just to break even on that change in land use. And even beyond that, well, the carbon sequestration component of this technique doesn't really exist right now. Not at the scales and and efficiencies that we need to make this a CO2 neutral or negative process. And so right now, as of one 2015 estimate, the best estimate for when this capture technology gets to a point that it's efficient enough to use in BEX is 10 to 30 years out. And If you remember our timeline for when this is supposed to be making up a very large component of our energy, well, that's also 30 years out. And this just doesn't mesh up with any sort of realistic schedule of removing this carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and reducing our emissions in a responsible carbon neutral or negative way. This brings us up to a technique called direct air capture and sequestration, DAX. DAX. And this basically carries the same idea of BEX, capturing that carbon that's being released from power production and instead saying, well, if we could do it from power production, maybe we could do this anywhere and pull carbon straight out of the air. Unfortunately, it's not quite as simple as that. The smoke and the, the chemicals that are emitted from power production is very highly concentrated, at least compared to the regular air. Carbon dioxide is much easier to pull out when there's a lot of it. And having to concentrate carbon dioxide in any sort of scale in order to pull it just straight out of the air becomes, well, energy inefficient. And because of that, this technique is very expensive. On the orders of right now, it ranges a lot depending on who you're listening to. If it's a startup, they claim it's a lot lower than the rigorous research is indicating, but on the orders of hundreds of dollars per ton. And so that would, I mean, to put it in perspective, a again, that flight from Boston to San Francisco, well, you're looking at maybe $400 more per ticket in order to offset the carbon if we were using this direct air capture and sequestration techniques. And that's expensive. It doesn't, the economy doesn't work on that sort of scale. We can't add that much cost to everything and in order to pay off these externalities, something we've talked about in the past that, again, nothing is profitable. Well, this is a really great dollar sign example of that fact. Well, let me put it in a more visual perspective, because like you mentioned, once CO2 is in the atmosphere, it's very dilute. We talk about the concentration of carbon dioxide in parts per million. We're at like 450 parts per million right now. So 
whatever technique you're using, if you're trying to remove this carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, you have to deal with a huge volume of air just to get to those very dilute molecules of carbon dioxide. And so if you wanted to remove 100% of the United States annual emissions of greenhouse gases, what you'd have to do, assuming you're not outputting additional greenhouse gases in the process, you'd have to remove about 110 pounds of CO2 every day for every single American. To give you an idea of how much volume of air you'd have to process in order to do that, what you do is you take air about as big as a football field and then go up 30 feet. That's how much air you'd have to process for each American every single day in order to get 110 pounds of CO2 out of it. <laughs> so this, this DAC method of hey, let's just uh, employ fans or or some big machine to just directly pull CO2 out of the air. And then, of course, we're going to have to use energy to sequester that somehow. It's just not going to work. Yeah. And the sequestering part of it is actually very complicated as well. It involves taking this carbon dioxide or carbon that we've removed, converting it to a form that can be easily stored. And usually the way that is done is by directly injecting that into deep wells in the land, sort of almost fracking-esque. It was so interesting is so the sequestration that we've really only done on extremely small scales, we haven't really played with this on a practical scale. The more you compress CO2 into some of these depleted oil wells or seawater aquifers, well, that pressure can sometimes lead to earthquakes. I mean, there have been some studies done that have linked earthquakes to some of this pressurized CO2 that we're pumping under the ground. And of course, it can leak. So as you can see, it's a very complicated problem. And it gets very expensive, both in dollar amounts and the energy required to store this, making it that much less efficient at removing this carbon from the air. And dependent at the same time on these renewable sources of energy, whether that's solar, whether that's wind, or whether something that's quasi-carbon neutral or negative like BEX, if that technology matures to a point where it actually is practical. So this is a lot of what-ifs, a lot of maybes, and uh, a lot to think about. And we really didn't even discuss all of them. I mean, there's some other ideas out there, burying CO2 in the ocean. There's an idea of accelerating weathering patterns to uh, increase the rate of the carbon cycle, which would involve mining a huge amounts of sediment. Hundreds of cubic kilometers of sediment. It's just a crazy scale. We didn't even touch on that one. But My favorite that we didn't mention is genetically bringing back alive woolly mammoths to uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> cross the tundras of the north and keep the permafrost there frozen, which is... If we're going to try one of these, I hope it's that one. Well, of course, there's also ideas of genetically altering crops so that they're more shiny and they block the sunlight more effectively. There's small scale things. L.A. has just started painting some of their streets white uh, in order to try and reflect some sun from this dark asphalt and raise the albedo of their streets. But at the same time, like we just discussed in our plastic episode, well, that paint is one of the major contributors of microplastics in the environment. So this painting of streets of all this surface area, well, that wears down very quickly and ends up back in the ocean, contributing to that environmental problem. It seems like we can never really do anything right, no matter what we try. Well, Dave, I think it comes to this simple idea, which is we're trying to solve a complex dynamic system, which is the global climate, by adding even more complexity. We're saying, oh, how can we block the sun? How can we seed clouds to have this effect? How can we dump things into the ocean to speed up some natural process? And I think if we take a step back, we can realize that instead of trying to control this very complex system, it would be so much simpler to just reduce the complexity in the human side of the equation. Daniel, that's too simple. Where's the profit in that? And that's ultimately what it comes down to, is that we have to grow our economy 
we have to grow our population in order to sustain this never-ending wheel that we're now on, that we have to come up with these techno fixes that ultimately aren't going to work. But because the very foundation of, of our lives now rests on this idea of indefinite growth, unless we're willing to question that and deal with the very difficult reality of the unsustainability associated with that foundation, then we really are just going to have to hope and pray for some kind of magic silver bullet. So what can we do, Daniel? It's that time of the show once more. What can we do, David? I think that what we can do, <laughs> paradoxically, is, and a little bit depressing, we need to research these technologies. We need to research them even more. Wait, you, you want to look more into mining the moon with, <laughs> with hundreds of thousands of trillion dollar robots? All right, maybe some of these ideas, we don't need to pursue them further. But, <laughs> but some of these more immediate ones that are a little bit more cost effective, like iron fertilization of the ocean, some of these quote unquote carbon neutral technologies like Beck's, I think we absolutely should investigate them more. And the reason is because at some point someone is going to do it. Because that is the way our incentive structures are set up. It's the way our economy works. We go full speed ahead in terms of our development and our growth. And we don't address the consequences of our actions until the costs of those consequences start to outweigh the benefits of our economic activities. So what that means is that we're going to reach a point through this climate change where the cost associated with the climate is so big that nations and institutions are going to be desperate to try anything, even at significant risk for the chance that it may alleviate some of these negative externalities, even if it's only in the short term. We know that this world is going to become more desperate. We know that this desperation will drive nations to the implementation of risky and harmful technologies. So the more we learn about how these technologies might actually work and some of the consequences associated with them, the more we'll be prepared to deal with the fallout of implementing these. And maybe we can lower a little bit the chance that some of these technologies are just going to wipe us out before the climate gets the chance. Wow, that is optimistic. And uh, going even more simple than that, I mean, discussing the world where we do, in fact, reduce our consumption of fossil fuels, it seems so obvious, but it is the simple solution here. If alcohol is destroying your liver, stop drinking. If smoking is destroying your lungs, stop smoking. Well, the same thing is true. If fossil fuels is killing the world, well, just stop burning it. And to begin looking again at our world economy, to understand the negative externalities that we're doing, borrowing from the future, borrowing from the future environment with the burning of these fossil fuels, and understanding that eventually that debt comes due. And it's better to get out of this now rather than later. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. But we need to start talking about no growth and degrowth in both our fossil fuels and our world economy as a whole. If you want to read about any of these crazy technologies or much more, checking facts, sources, and the like, as well as a full transcript of this show, you can find that on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these shows possible, and we will never use ads to support this show, and we will never purchase ads, as effective as that might be, to seed clouds on your newsfeed. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. If you have any thoughts related to this episode, some ideas about how we can engineer the climate, send them to us and maybe we can share that on an upcoming episode or create a startup around that idea. Send us a check. We're also on your favorite social media website at Ashes Ashes Cast or on Reddit at the Ashes Ashes Cast subreddit. We have an exciting episode coming up next week exploring an economic issue that we all interact with daily. 
I know I'm excited. So we hope you tune in. Until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye bye. By the way, I'm drinking from a stainless steel bottle now. I'm drinking from a plastic bottle today. <laughs> After researching this episode, when I realized everything is hopeless, I switched back to plastic. Well, dang. There you go.